0: Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the Blockworks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating interview. Really appreciate it. All right. On with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest Michael Howell of Cross Border Capital. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. And frankly, Michael, I think this is a really opportune time for us to be speaking. Obviously, you and I are going to be together in person for the DAS London conference. That, if you've been listening to On the Margin, you probably know all about at this point. But the TLDR, twelve hundred registrants, largest institutional conference in digital assets. Michael, you're going to be there speaking. Uh, and again, if you're listening, you've got code margin twenty to get twenty percent off there. But you know, in terms of this interview, what we're going to be discussing about is kind of perfect for that conference. So we're going to start talking about high street inflation and differentiate that from monetary inflation. Uh, we're going to see how your view on that segues into the global liquidity picture, which has actually been picking up. And to give you credit, you were very right about calling a bottom of that in September. It's been trending up this year, which is having implications for asset markets. And then eventually we're going to end with your sort of prescribed solution for ways to mitigate this or to, to play this in markets, which is monetary hedges, which you talk about as being gold and Crypto. I'm just going to turn it
1: right over to you. Uh, can you see? Can you see my screen? Yeah. So what this is basically saying is, this is the the outlook for next year. And broadly, uh, everything we look at really starts with uh, starts and finishes with liquidity. Really, liquidity is what drives markets, and what we're uh, trying to understand is where that uh, where that global money is going. And what I'm <clears throat> what I'm saying here is that the global liquidity cycle bottomed about last. September, September 22, uh, it's been rising pretty gently, but consistently ever since. And that's helped to lift both Wall Street and uh, generally risk assets. Uh, What it hasn't done is, uh, is uh, given a lift of bond prices. But basically, bonds are really suffering from, um, you know, as we will argue, uh, the risks of higher inflation and uh, let's say fiscal dominance. I mean, that's, that's really a great concern. What's pushing bond yields higher? A term premier. They're wonkish as a wonkish concept, but it's all about really the confidence in the funding uh, of the U.S. government, which I'll come onto a bit later. The conclusion of what we're really saying is that what 2024 really will bring is likely less high street inflation. It will also bring a backdrop of rising global liquidity. That's not just about what the Federal Reserve may be doing is also other central banks, in particular what the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China are doing. They're both uh, quite aggressively injecting liquidity right now. And generally what we say is that this is a world where you're going to get more monetary inflation. Now, monetary inflation needs to be distinguished from uh, high street inflation. And one of the things that traditionally people claim is that um, something like the gold price is very good, a very good hedge against high-street inflation. The reality it isn't. Uh, it happens to be a brilliant hedge against monetary inflation. But high-street inflation is not only monetary inflation. It also includes cost inflation. And what you've got going on in 2024 is likely um, a falling off of cost inflation pressures because basically we're looking at the supply-side adjustment to the COVID crisis. In other words, supply is coming back on track. Uh, demand is being crimped. And effectively, uh, supply channels are working, so inflation or cost inflation is coming down. That will be a damper on high-street inflation. But in the background, what you're getting is a building up of monetary inflation. Monetary inflation is what central banks do. It's when they undermine the value of money. And what you need to do in the long term for asset allocation is basically grab more monetary inflation hedges. Monetary inflation hedges are things like gold that works brilliantly in the long term. And also increasingly crypto assets. You might even say that crypto, because it's very, very sensitive to higher liquidity, is exponential gold. And that's a thought. Our analysis shows that for every one unit increase in liquidity, you get about a one unit increase in the price of gold. But you get a five unit increase in crypto prices. And that's why, you know, looking at crypto makes an awful lot of sense you've got to hold it in portfolios.
0: All right, Michael, that's, that's really helpful, kind of just laying out your high-level thesis and how one idea flows into the other. And maybe, maybe I'd love to start with kind of this, this first pronouncement of yours, this less high street inflation. So can you, can you give listeners a sense of why you think high street inflation has finally broken um, and where you see sort of headline uh, trending in the future? And then we can get into liquidity and monetary inflation.
1: So I think you've got to, uh, envision inflation as being basically made up of two components. This is high street inflation I'm talking about. One element is cost inflation. So that's things like higher old prices, maybe higher wages. It may be factors like uh, changing productivity behavior, et cetera. But it's basically real economic factors that would change the cost base, uh, of a, of a price, uh, price of a good or price of a service or whatever. When you come to the other moving part, that's about monetary inflation. That's undermining the value of credit money or paper money that you use to actually pay for goods and services. That's the other element that will come into high street inflation. Now, high street inflation could be one factor or the other. What we saw in the 1970s when oil prices were skyrocketing, that was very clearly a cost inflation that was driving uh, high street inflation at that time. If you look back at the COVID crisis, it was a little bit of a mixture of the two. It was partly Fed largesse, in other words, the Federal Reserve did accommodate uh, the the COVID crisis by printing a lot of money. We know that M two data, for example, uh, accelerated rapidly. That created a dose of monetary inflation, but equally, disruptions on the supply side basically gave an upward lift to cost inflation, and that basically also fed through into prices. So, in often, it's often the case that High street inflation is a cocktail, if you like, of both these factors. Now, if we move into 2024, what you've got is an ongoing supply side adjustment to the COVID crisis. In other words, supply is coming back on track. Demand has been crimped by tight fed policies. And lo and behold, what you're getting is a period where excess supply is starting to uh, become more prominent and excess supply pressure is causing prices or cost inflation. Sorry, it's causing cost inflation and therefore high street inflation to start to come down. So I think in 2024, we'll be seeing, uh, lower inflation. Uh, already, if you start to look at producer prices, what you're seeing is evidence worldwide of actually price deflation. In other words, prices actually Mm. falling. And so that is likely to feed through to the high street next year. So it's very likely that we've got a year of lowish inflation. Now I'm not going to, uh, you know, argue that we might, we might not see volatile Uh, cost inflation in the future. That's entirely possible. It may be that wage inflation starts to pick up again. Uh, It may be that oil prices spike. Uh, Geopolitical tensions are clearly uh, uppermost at the moment. And these things are, you know, highly fragile. So it's entirely possible that we get volatile cost inflation. But the thing that's really of a worry for investors is the fact that monetary inflation is starting a long, secular, upward course. And that's because the fiscal finances, not just of the U.S., but of most Western governments, are actually shot through. Uh, the real problem is aging demographics and a very, very uh, narrow tax base is causing governments to come back to financial markets to fund. Uh, that funding capacity is threatened. Um, if you look back at the U.S., for example, the U.S. has benefited hugely in the last decade or so from savings that have come from Asia, particularly uh, from Japanese households or from the Chinese state, they've been big buyers of uh, of U.S. government debt. That is unlikely to be the case in the future. Uh, with growing fiscal demands, the U.S. government, the U.S. Treasury, will have to turn towards the Federal Reserve increasingly uh, to fulfil its funding requirements. That is monetary inflation. It's what economists call fiscal dominance, if you like. In other words, the fiscal uh, uh, the fiscal accounts are dominating monetary policy actions, and that will likely mean an expanding Fed balance sheet, more monetary inflation. Um, more monetary inflation would likely lift Wall Street. There's no question about that because it typically does. But what you really want to hold are more monetary inflation hedges. And as I've said at the bottom of that slide, that really means holding more gold, more crypto probably generically, you also want to hold more commodities and real assets in this world. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do,
0: I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at BlockWorks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, BlockWorks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers, that's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers etc and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets DAS London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point 0.72, the large HFTs, the family offices, all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets, and where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real-world assets, so that's stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all of that funds stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On the Margin, giving you an extra code, Margin20. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code Margin20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. I'm going to sort of tease out the relationship here in between your thoughts on especially less high street inflation, and rising global liquidity, because liquidity is an enormous part of this story, and it's something that you've done quite a bit of work on. So I'm going to go to this this next slide here where you've uh, charted out your definition of liquidity. So for the audience who maybe is just especially those following along um, just via audio, can you describe how you picture global liquidity and
1: what is the relationship between liquidity and inflation from your standpoint? What we mean here by global liquidity is the flow of money through world financial markets. This is a concept which is uh, not M1 or M2, the traditional monetary aggregates. Those are really measuring money in the real economy. And that basically, uh, by definition, uh, flows through banks. What this here is looking at is flows generally through financial markets. Uh, global liquidity is a much, much bigger concept than money supply. Uh, the amount of money we're talking about here is about $170 trillion. So it's something like, uh, you know, another 50%, 60% bigger uh, than traditional or even broad money supply measures. Uh, it's also about, uh, you know, one or three quarter times world GDP, to put it in context. Now, why is it so important in the world? It's very important really from two dimensions. One is, by definition, it provides funding. Uh, it provides funding for transactions generally in financial markets. It's particularly important when it comes to rolling over debt and funding debt. And one of the things that we keep making the point about is that if you look at where financial markets are today, they are no longer purely new financing vehicles to raise capital for new capital plant or new capital equipment. They're basically refinancing mechanisms for debt. And if you're refinancing debt, it's the capacity of the financial system that's important, not the interest rate that you're using to roll the debt over. That clearly is is a factor, but it's not the crucial one. Think of it like a home mortgage. If you need to roll your home mortgage, say it comes up after a 20-year period, it matures, uh, you've got to roll that mortgage. Don't worry about what the interest rate is. You just desperately need the roll, otherwise you're homeless. And the same occurs with debt. Debt has a life. Uh, The average duration of debt in the world economy is about five years, uh, with something like $350 trillion of debt around. What you're talking about, therefore, is refinancing in other words, rolling about $70 trillion of debt each year. Now, you need balance sheet capacity to do that, and balance sheet capacity is one of the ways we define global liquidity. So that's really what we're talking about. It's not a conventional money supply measure. It's the amount of money traveling through global financial markets. Central banks are important in creating that funding pool. Uh, they're, in many cases, often the trigger which gets these things moving. Uh, but, uh, central bank balance sheets are really a drop in the ocean when it comes to looking at the size of this central bank balance sheet in aggregate are probably about 25 to 30 trillion US dollars. Uh, we're talking here of a pool of global liquidity, which is, uh, 170 trillion dollars. So to sum up, basically, it's not so much, it's, it's really,
0: there's this enormous almost think of it as this sort of this pinwheel of, uh, continue this, this debt that needs to get rolled over and refunded. And it's the ability of the global financial system to actually uh, continue to refinance that debt. And that is what we're talking about when we're, when
1: we're discussing liquidity. Exactly. So- I mean, in other words, debt equals liquidity. Liquidity equals debt. Debt equals liquidity. It's really a spiral. And so every time you expand debt, you need more liquidity, uh, etc. And what we've got is we're we're very clearly in an upward uh, exponential growth of debt uh, worldwide. I mean, just think of the interest rates now. Uh, they're causing debt levels to spiral because of the, uh, you know, governments simply adding their interest belong to the existing debt. No one's paying it back, of course. One question
0: for you on the the interest rate uh, thing that you pointed out, which is basically, like, you got a mortgage and the interest rate resets higher. You don't really care what that resets to. You, you just want to roll it over. That said, I, I do think that there's probably some amount of companies, let's just say, let's just look at U.S. corporates, something like that. There's probably some amount of U.S. corporates that are not solvent at a certain interest rate percentage. Let's just use something really high for... Uh, hypothetical, say 20% or something like that. Some amount of corporates then just go bankrupt, right? They can't continue to operate at interest rates at that level. And so then I guess what you would have actually is assets or liquidity in the way that we're talking about it kind of disappear from the financial system. So I, I guess I'm I'm with you in the sense that, yeah, the the interest rate doesn't really matter because people will do whatever they can to roll it over. But is there is there some level of interest rates where you actually start to see assets get permanently impaired and therefore sort of withdrawing liquidity from the global system? Or help me understand a little bit more granularly about how you think about interest rates.
1: I'm desperately trying not to say that interest rates are unimportant because clearly they are important. What I'm trying to say is that in the modern world, uh, funding and the pool of liquidity is probably more important to understand or equally as important, let's say. Uh, okay at least to be sort of neutral on this. I think when you come down to interest rates, I think one of the interesting questions is to ask, why is it that uh, if you look at the US economy, the US economy has largely been unmoved by the increase in interest rates that we've seen so far? And I think the question is really to, to separate the trend in the economy from the cycle in the economy. Now, in my view, in my experience, what drives the cycle are really two things. One is wealth effects, in other words, wealth effects from rising residential real estate prices or from Wall Street. Now actually on a year on year basis, the overall wealth effect in the US is still marginally positive. So you can't really say that's dented uh consumer expectations very much. It's actually going to lift, a marginal lift, but it's going to lift over twelve months. And the other thing is fiscal policy is very loose. So those two things together are increasing spending in the US economy. And lo and behold, probably explain why the economy is being robust. Now, what about the interest rate question? Well, I think the interest rate question tends to impact small to medium-sized companies, pretty much the uh, the grouping that you're talking about, and it impairs their performance. Now, those are the vehicles of long-term productivity growth. So what you're really saying is that, okay, you know, we can accept the fact that maybe the cycle is dampened, and the cycle isn't uh, as severe as many economists have been saying, but the long-term trend in the U.S. economy is very clearly going to be adversely affected by these high level of interest rates, because it's really uh, starting to crucify some of these small, smaller, mid-sized companies who are crucial for long-term productivity performance. Mm
0: all right i that sounds like a, a very good sort of knitting of those two ideas Michael can can you walk us through the chart that we're looking at here, which is this five to six year sort of long term cycle of
1: global liquidity? Why does it tend to move like this of course okay well what this is looking at is an index of all global liquidity or all liquidity in the world economy. so we're looking at uh, not just the u s we're looking at europe we're looking at britain we're looking at japan China uh in fact, it consists of about ninety economies worldwide clearly the u s China, Japan, Europe are the most important of those, but uh, there's a there's a big tail. What it shows is uh, a cycle that is seemingly uh, fairly regular about five to six years. Why it's five to six years is almost anyone's guess, but that's what the data shows. Now, just to try and emphasize that we're not cheating in this, uh, we've been collecting this data for, for several decades now. Uh, we first drew the dotted line, the sine wave, on that graph uh, around year two thousand, because that's it. Then fitted pretty well. We did use data to fit that sine wave, but we've extrapolated it thereafter. And what it seems to show is a fairly regular pattern continuing. Now, what is driving that is really comes really comes down to two things. One of those is central banks. So central banks are key to enlivening um, the global equality cycle. In other words, they are important at the inflection points when you start to see very uh, tough global liquidity conditions, what you find is that central banks come back in. Why do they come back in? Largely, it's because around those inflection points, what you tend to get is uh, credit problems emerging, and central banks will come in to support their financial systems. Viz, SVB, failure back February, March of this year, uh, Viz, the UK uh, British guilt crisis back last September, which for us was a key turning point. And you can start to get the feeling that central banks are beginning to move in, move back. Uh, in actual fact, more and more central banks, but particularly outside of the West, are starting to ease policy. We, I've said earlier on that People's Bank of China is easing very significantly. Um, since June of this year, they have put something like half a trillion US dollars back into their money markets, which is a huge jumpstart for the Chinese economy. And if you look at data on China, such as Asia-Pacific trade, that's starting to pick up. Look at some of the inflows that are going through U.S. ports on the West Coast at the moment. They seem to be lifting up. Iron ore prices are starting to also lift higher. And that would suggest that the Chinese economy may be seeing an inflection upwards. So all these things are starting to come together. The other thing that's very important to understand is the pool of collateral in the world economy. Because since the global financial crisis, almost all private sector lending now has to rely on some form of collateral. Uh, in other words, banks don't trust anyone, uh, not even themselves. And so what they require is, is some form of asset against which they're going to lend. Now, that asset tends to be, uh, um, for the most part, U.S. treasuries or German bunds or some form of high-quality high, uh, high quality government bond. Uh, clearly, in the case of household mortgages, it's your real estate that's used as collateral. But generally speaking, lenders need collateral. And if that pool of collateral is expanding, then there's more juice in the system, in other words, more ability to actually expand liquidity. And so one of the things we've also got to be cognizant of is what happens to the bond markets over the next 12 months, because that's another factor that will either uh, improve or impair collateral going forward. Uh, so these are the two main drivers, and broadly, what we're seeing Despite the fact that bond markets have sold off of late, we think they're beginning to stabilize now, albeit at high levels, uh, high yield levels, and that will cause, so or that will be a decent platform for global liquidity to build. Got
0: it. Okay, so basically, you know, so two of the near-term catalysts is the easing going on from the from the PBOC, but then also this global financial system now, which is heavily reliant on collateral, which is some German boons, but I'm going to assume mostly U.S. treasuries, if uh, especially longer-term yields have sort of peaked, and I I, I think your your target for the ten-year is maybe maxing out at five five and a half percent uh, roundabouts there. Then we've probably got room to run the other direction, which is going to expand the collateral base of the global financial system, which will allow entities to do more things with that collateral. Correct. Is that Absolutely. a pretty
1: good? Right. Yeah, And I think you know it's good to sort of to frame this around you know what the Federal Reserve is doing right now, uh, and I think the next slide sort of goes to answer that question because there's a lot of uncertainty about whether the Federal Reserve is truly engaged in a quantitative tightening, or are they doing some sort of stealth QE process. Now, I hesitate to use the word QE, but I think what they're doing is they're probably doing what you may call, to mix my, my mnemonics, QS, quantitative support. And if you look at the chart in front of you, what you can see here is the red line is showing the size of the Fed balance sheet, uh, in other words, that's the overall balance sheet that as, as reported. And it's this which the Federal Reserve refers to when it talks about its QT policy. What it's trying to do is to shrink the size of the balance sheet. Now, you can see that they're making some progress there. The little blip upwards around March was what happened uh, in their response to SVB. Uh, the dotted red line is what their original plans were. So you can see how much they're deviating from that. And very broadly, they're, uh, they're quite a way away from their original targets. And then the orange line is saying, well, okay, not all items on the Fed balance sheet create or destroy liquidity. Uh, they don't necessarily affect liquidity. So let's just look at the liquidity creating parts of the Fed balance sheet. And that's the orange line that you can see measured on the right-hand scale. Now, lo and behold, what you've seen is a, at least a flatlining of that, of that uh, data series. If not a gentle uplift, and that is really what matters for financial markets, because this is the amount of money that the Federal Reserve is injecting into the financial system. Now we can dance on the head of a pin and say, "Well, is this really, uh, you know, Jay, Jay Powell doing this, or is it Janet doing it because of the rundown of the of the TGAA or different funding mechanisms for the Treasury?" I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of equivocal about that. It doesn't really matter. But the reality is that U.S. money markets are getting a whiff of more liquidity. And that's one of the reasons that the market has held up remarkably well through this year. And I come back to the point that if you ask, why is Wall Street up this year? The simple reason is, number one, inflation has fallen. And number two, liquidity has gone up. And those are always the only two things that really matter for the street. Uh, bond markets don't really have such a big effect as this claim. It's all about inflation and about liquidity. Those are the key drivers. And those two boxes you can tick for this year. Uh, what's going to happen next year? Well, we would argue that liquidity goes up again, and we think that inflation is still benign and coming down. So it could still be another good year for, for equities. But in the longer term, I come back to the point that what you really want are monetary inflation hedges because the fiscal arithmetic is going badly wrong. And ultimately, the Fed will have to bail the system out. What's going
0: on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On the Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of Blockworks Research. Now, many of you will probably f- be familiar with our platform, but Blockworks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin10 for a 10% discount and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Chart that Michael was describing here is this is a chart of Fed balance sheet and and Fed liquidity. It's at least the the red part of this chart, which is the balance sheet we've shown on this program many many times. Um, and there's this there's this pretty consistent pattern when it comes to the Fed balance sheet, which is you know very very sharp. Uh, uh, increases in the Fed balance sheet, which tends to be actually just uh, just after crises. So if you look at the great financial crisis and COVID, that's kind of this large expansion. Then there's kind of a steady, slower ramp up. And then there's an attempt to uh, taper some of the balance sheet off, but they never seem to quite get there. So you know, my question to you is how successful do you think the the Fed is ultimately going to be at decreasing the amount on its balance sheet or are we going to start to see more t- uh, signs of this quantitative support, which uh, I'm a big, big fan of?
1: Well, I think the answer is that arithmetically, um, it may well be that the the stated or reported balance sheet does shrink further. Mm. But I would say, does that really matter? That's not that's not what that's not what matters to markets. It matters for you know maybe Fed officials can pat themselves on the back and say, okay, well, we hit our targets. But my argument would be actually they've moved the goalposts several times anyway because that's not a, that's not originally how we used to think of QE or QT. It wasn't about the size of the balance sheet. It was about the liquidity impulse that came from Fed uh, Fed actions, uh, and that very clearly I would argue is going up. And you know I've been saying now for over a year. Look, <laughs> you know I'll I'll just let's just look at the data. Let's look at the H four point one report that comes out of the Fed every Thursday evening, and let's just look at it. And I would argue. But that is going to flatline, at least. And what we've seen over the last 12 months is basically a situation that if it's yellow and quacks, it's a duck. Well, you've seen an awful lot of quacking over the, lex- over the, last, uh, uh, over the last year here. Uh, basically, uh, liquidity is going up. It's at least stabilizing and probably gently rising. And that's important. And what it's telling us is that the U.S. Monetary Authority, by which I mean the Fed and the Treasury, do not want to impair liquidity in the U.S. financial system. Uh, very much at all. And if you look at US banks' reserves, they have flatlined at around three and a quarter trillion dollars pretty much every week now, uh, that the data has come in. And that must be a target. Uh, and as I say, if it's yellow and quacks is a duck and it looks like it's a duck to me. So that's what's going on. Now you've got to add to that, uh, various other elements. Let's look at what the treasury is doing. Uh, the treasury through the quarterly refinancing announcement surprised the markets. And what they were, uh, what everyone thought they were going to announce was a return to significant funding through coupons. In other words, through uh, through notes and bonds. So that's anything with a maturity beyond uh, effectively 12 months. Um, and normally the Federal Reserve, ten- or sorry, the Treasury tends to fund itself around the five to 10 year area. And so people were envisioning a big increase in coupon issuance around those tenors. Now, actually, what we got was a, a very surprising announcement, which was pretty bullish on the market. And read that, I think, understandably as being quite bullish because what, uh, you know, what Janet announced was that you got a, a very big step up in bill issuance, uh, relative to our expectations. Bill issuance in Q4 was up 30, over 30%. Um, Coupon issuance was down 40% relative to what we thought it would be. And then you go into Q1, you see another 20% increase in bill issuance relative to our expectations and a 50% drop in coupon issuance. So, you know, what you're looking at now is something like 72% of total funding for the US Treasury in Q1 2024 is now going to be provided by bills. And that does not put strain on uh, liquidity in markets, because basically treasury bills are liquidity. Uh, they're equivalent to, effectively, the government borrowing from banks. And so what, you, what you've what you had through the quarterly re, uh, refunding announcement is something like a sort of notional $75 billion injection into markets. Uh, think of it that way. Uh, relative to people's expectations, that's effectively what the outturn is. So that, that's good too. And then what you've got alongside is to pay for much of this increased spending. Uh, the Treasury is engineering a rundown of the reverse repo facility at the Federal Reserve. Now, that's a wonkish concept. That effectively is money that's held on the sidelines in a separate account that's not really circulating in the system. And that's what the money funds have been holding uh, as a way of getting extra interest payments now, if you target the money funds directly with bills at specific tenors, they are going to prefer to buy the treasury bill rather than hold money in the Fed overnight. And basically, that's what they're doing. So what you're looking at in latest data, New York Fed data, is the reverse repo facility has fallen below a trillion um, you know, in the last week or so. And that's a significant drop from where it was uh, you know, not um, two, three months ago. So all these factors are starting to help juicer system with more liquidity. And all this is against the background where we know that the fiscal situation in the U.S. is deteriorating uh, over the medium term.
0: So, all right, that is a very interesting dynamic. We've been talking quite a bit about the quarterly refunding amounts. we've had Andy Constant on the show the last couple of weeks to to discuss this and we've been talking about this ratio of bills to bonds that the treasury usually prefers to fund itself at but has kind of this they've shifted and bucked the historical you know maxing out at 20% uh, funding by, by bills i didn't really necessarily connect the dots in between the money market funds preference for bills um maybe within that equation so i know the the fed and maybe not directly but they've been you know, probably encouraging the draining of the reverse repo facility, which built up over $2 trillion, maybe $2.5 trillion, something like that at, at its peak. So is maybe part of the decision to issue more bills than bonds. Um, is it because they're trying to drain that reverse repo facility? Is that the sort of stated objective or could you just kind of flesh out that, that relationship a little bit more? That wasn't a,
1: something I'd. Compare. Yeah. I mean, it basically means it, it, it uh, means that they can issue a lot of bills because they can basically uh do that without sort of disrupting the system too much because they know they're already buyers uh of bills in the money funds. I mean that that's what the money funds uh basically, you know, I say are there for, but that, that's what their their sort of bread and butter is, are uh, buying bills. Um and so if the Treasury sells to them, then they can buy. Now they've got capacity to buy uh on the assumption that they uh they're not putting money elsewhere, such as in the Fed's reverse repo account. So if you force them out of the reverse repo account, then they're going to basically provide a very uh, cheap and easy means of funding uh, your deficit in the short term. I mean, the the problem that you know <laughs> clearly the treasury is is getting itself into here is that then the rule of thumb is that you do eighty percent of your funding, fiscal funding uh through coupons and twenty percent through bills. And we're running at levels now, which as I say, in the in Q1 next year, it's 72% bills, 28% coupons. So it's almost the reverse of what it should be. So to catch up in the future, they're gonna have to have a, a pretty uh, you know hefty coupon calendar uh, for for the market to absorb. And that's got to be the worry. So these actions are maybe short term bullish, but they're you know they're they're not they're certainly not bullish long term. Uh, in terms of the funding requirements. And I think if you look at the chart in front of you, what you can see is the prospective coupon supply that's coming out of the, out of the treasury. That's the black line. Now the, the wobble that you see in that chart or the step around 2020 is the COVID crisis where basically funding switched away from coupons into bills. And then you've seen a catch up ever since and the line just extrapolates in the, into the future. This is based on numbers that come out of the, um, out of the uh, Congressional Budget Office. So it's, uh, you know, bipartisan body. And basically what this is looking at is, uh, you know, you're looking at $16 trillion of coupon supply, effective coupon supply for the US private sector. What I've done in this data is to take out what you'd normally expect foreigners to buy and what you'd expect as well, the Federal Reserve on a normal day would take out. Now, what you can see from the orange line is this is the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, take up of debt. I've called it Federal Reserve net liquidity injection because effectively they're, they're using money to buy those bonds. And that helps to increase gradually. And the reason that increases gradually is that what I've used is again, the Congressional Budget Office forecast of what they expect the Federal Reserve to do. Now that is really allowing the Federal Reserve's balance sheet to expand pursue with an increase in GDP, but it does mean that they're actually increasing their treasury purchases. Now, what I would argue is that that is unsustainable, that gap between the black line and the orange line, because that's really showing the increased burden that the domestic US private sector has to take on of this increased debt supply. So I would say that the most likely outcome is you've got to start to see that orange line move much, much more closely with the black line. Going forward. In other words, the Fed has to step up again and fiscal dominance, if you like, is driving, uh, a renewed QE or let's call that QS, uh, which is, you know, a more neutral, anodyne comment, quantitative support, not quantitative easing. Um, uh, and that's what they're going to have to do. And if you look at the, the following slide, what I show there is how, uh, our estimates, if you like, of treasury, uh, holdings by the Federal Reserve compare to the Congressional Budget Office data. The orange bars are the latest stated uh, opinion of the Congressional Budget Office as to what the Federal Reserve will hold. You can see there's a dogleg going on there. In other words, that you fall through to 2025, where essentially so-called QT takes those holdings lower. I would argue that effectively that's not happening anyway, but you know, I'll come quietly because the other side of that uh, of that, uh, uh, dog leg is going up strongly. And then the gray bars are basically saying, well, then, hang on a second. If you look at the congressional budget Office data, they got fairly conservative numbers for defense spending. And if you put defense spending near a 5% of GDP, uh, that alone, that, uh, that line item alone will actually give you the gray bars. Now, the percentage changes on those bars represent the implied increase in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet uh, as it holds more and more of this debt. And you can see that you're well into double-digit growth rates over that period going through to 2033. So, you know, if you want to th- think of what the Federal Reserve balance sheet will look like in absolute terms, simply add $3 trillion to those gray bars, and by, what, 2029, you're talking a $10 trillion uh Federal Reserve balance sheet again. Uh, again, or you're you're you gonna you're gonna be up to 10 trillion, I should say. Uh that's a, you know that's a worrying dimension. So this is monetization. And in that world what you need are more and more monetary hedges. Uh it may well be that Wall Street does well in that environment. I can't believe that bond markets do well. Um, you know man, you know we're 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 getting a generous five percent coupon at the front end of curves at the moment. That's probably worth having. But in the medium I can't believe that's a, that's a great, uh, that's, that's greatly attractive. So essentially what you've got to find is more, more balance in portfolios and you've got to start thinking about monetary inflation, not necessarily high street inflation, as I keep saying. It may well be that because of negative cost pressures, high street inflation is quite benign. But what really matters here in terms of looking at gold or crypto is the monetary inflation background. And what we're saying here is that monetary inflation is going to to start to pick up. Now, the important question is, or an important question, is how does that relate to the U.S. dollar? Well, you know, one of the things I've I've said repeatedly is it may well be that the U.S. government is the cleanest shirt in the laundry here. Uh, And, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of other countries have got really worse fiscal situations than America. And although a lot of the numbers, as Stan Drucker-Miller you know, very acutely said a couple of weeks ago in an interview, yep. if you look at the numbers on uh, on the U.S. fiscal situation, this looks a lot more like Argentina than America, right? Okay, fair enough. But the trouble is that uh, every other country is more looking like Zimbabwe than, uh, you know, Europe or Britain or Japan. So, you know, everyone else is a lot worse. I'd rather be an Argentina in this world than a Zimbabwe. And that's basically what we've got to start thinking about. Fiscal arithmetic is dangerously out of control. For the simple reason that aging demographics are pushing up spending on Medicare, Social Security, geopolitical tensions are pushing up defense spending. The tax bases are very fragile, and that may be a, f- a factor of, uh, you know, of, uh, of, the, of the digital world and whatever. So it's very difficult to tax transactions or workers now. That's very difficult. No government has got uh, a mandate to say they want to increase taxation. Uh, nor are they are they going to have any ability to do that with the polarization of politics that we're getting in almost every continent. So no government's going to say, well, like, okay, vote me and I'm going to raise taxes. That's impossible. So you've got to come back to financial markets to fund this. And that is the problem. Debt monetization is the only thing that can really work in this world. Uh, otherwise, you, you face the unpalatable prospect of cutting spending. And I would argue that's pretty much impossible because most of this stuff is mandatory spending. Uh, levels. So you've just got to fund it through monetary means. Now, what does that mean? Bottom line, you need monetary inflation hedges. What the the uh, next chart basically shows is the track record of monetary inflation hedges, uh, basically, against global liquidity. Now, let me just explain this chart because it's, uh, it, it's it looks a bit busy at first sight. So what this is looking at is weekly data uh, you know, going right back, uh, is, is about 10 years of data in this. And what it looks at is the performance of monetary inflation hedges, which consists of gold and crypto assets, uh, as the black line against the, uh, three month annualized growth rate of global liquidity. And what I've done here is I advanced global liquidity by about 12 weeks forward. So it's leading, um, this, this picture. And what it says is the, that, that, these two assets together, gold and crypto, tend to be really good monetary inflation hedges. Now, they don't get every twist and turn, and sometimes they break out, as you can see, they, they did in 2020 but uh, and come back to earth again. But broadly speaking, over the longer term, they seem to be a fairly consistent uh, hedge uh, against monetary inflation pressures, as me- measured here by global liquidity. So if global liquidity is on the up, as we argue it is, then what you've got to have is these sort of safeguards. And therefore, I would argue, have both in your portfolio. And I think as I sort of alluded to right at the beginning of this uh, of this discussion, if you look at the sensitivity of each of those assets to an increase in global liquidity, what you find is the impact on of liquidity on crypto is about five times that on uh, gold itself. So gold is a traditional monetary hedge. Crypto is a new monetary hedge. Crypto seems to be, if you like, uh fulfilling the role of exponential gold. And I think that makes it an attractive vehicle. And what's more, it's a fairly decent barometer as well of liquidity. So if you're unsure as to what's happening generally in the world of liquidity, just look at what crypto is doing. And that if it's going up, it's probably telling you there's more liquidity around. So you can use that as a general rule for your asset allocation. You referenced the interview that... uh Stan
0: Druckenmiller did with Paul Tudor Jones a couple of weeks ago. I thought that was a really important interview for folks to watch, and we'll link it in the show notes here, um, in case you want to go listen to it, which I highly recommend that you do. There was a couple of things that sort of stood out to me. So those facts, those sort of um, those facts that you were referencing there was I think uh by Stan's math, you know, he mentioned something like in the 20, you know, 2040s or something like that. Right, if basically if we keep expanding debt at the rate that we're expanding debt currently, you know the interest payments are going to be something like 140 or 150 percent of expenditure today. So, you know, you've referenced a couple of different times um, the math on the fiscal situation simply not working. Um, And you know, one of the things that that stood out to me about the Stan Druckenmiller interview was that. He said, look, I've basically been focused on debt you know, and thought it was a gigantic problem all the way going back to the 90s. But I made a promise to myself that I was never going to let it impact my investment decisions because he didn't think that that was moving markets. But that's something that he is has broken now and is actually letting his, his, uh, his thoughts on debt uh, impact his investment decisions and strategies. And so I, I just wanted to get your sense on on that particular comment. And I would love for you to kind of comment, you've sort of alluded here a couple of times to the long-term, like unsustainable fiscal situation. Can you just put a little bit more color around that? When you talk about that math, what exactly does that mean to you? Because that's going to inform the the monetary hedge part of the discussion too.
1: So it's a very good point that I think that Sam Drucker makes that, you know, maybe debt has not impeded on investment decisions that much historically, but it will do in the future. And therefore, the question to ask is, why is that the case? And I think if you look back, certainly over the last two or three decades, you can actually see there have been two or three standout events. I mean, one of those is there is the the ending of the Cold War and the sort of uh, dividend that the West, and particularly the U.S. got, and facilitated a decline in, in defense spending. And that now is clearly reversing. So you've got to start to factor in that as one factor. The other two things, which I think are important. Second point is what happened after, after the GFC. And with the GFC, you got an attempt by regulators to make banking systems more stable. Now, one of the ways they did that was to get banks and in fact, later insurance companies to hold a lot more government debt for which read U.S. treasuries. So there was a lot of demand for U.S. treasuries from international banks and domestic banks to hold in portfolios, which meant that government's got you know very easy access to funding through the last decade or so that's now still that's still there but it's clearly uh, coming to an end in terms of that uh, catch up in terms of portfolios but the third thing is something i think is also good one's got to think about and that is japan and you might even throw in china on top of that the japanese households have been huge huge funders of the american deficit uh, or U.S. treasuries over the last two to three decades. One of the big anomalies in markets is the interest rate differential between Japan and the U.S. So in Japan, you've got bond yields of circa 1%. In the U.S., it's 5%, right? That gap is a huge gap. And that's one of the reasons that the Japanese traditionally have actually liked U.S. treasuries. They're considered to be a safe, high-yielding asset. Now, for most of that period, what we've spent is the West has basically tr- been trying, uh, maybe against its own will, but it's been effectively converging on Japan. So a lot of people have been saying, like, OK, what we're seeing in the West is uh, Japanification. Uh, we're seeing disinflationary pressures. Uh, the West is starting to turn into uh, a, a, a Japan in a way. Uh, we've got demographic burdens, similar things. We've got rising debt, whatever. What you're looking at in Japan is the reverse of that insofar as what Japan is lately trying to do is catch up with the West, right? So they're inflating their system rapidly. And if you start to drill down into Japanese inflation data, what you're seeing is very clear evidence that a lot of prices are starting to rise at significantly worrying rates. And what I'm talking about is somewhat, you know, circa 3 to 5% at an annualized sustained rate. So Japan is going to flip out of disinflation quite quickly into what may be a Western-style level of inflation of something sustainably above 2 3%. Now, if that's the case, if you're a Japanese household, why do you want to hold so many of your assets in bonds, low-yielding bonds? Why do you want to take the risk on US debt as well? Why shouldn't you be Equally, thinking about monetary inflation hedges, why shouldn't you as a Japanese buy more equities, buy more real estate, buy more gold, buy more crypto? And the more that they do that, the less they're going to be buying U.S. Treasuries. And that's another factor which is going to start to affect the equation. So you've lost a very important buyer um, you know, of the Treasury market. The other thing is China. China's also been a huge buyer of U.S. Treasuries ever since it built up whopping great, foreign exchange reserves uh, back after the Asian crisis. And we know China is now diverting a lot of that spending not into U.S. treasuries, but basically into other assets, like it's building up its strategic petroleum reserve or its strategic holding of minerals or it's doing more Belt and Road initiative schemes, whatever it may be, but it's not buying treasuries in the way it did. So this is why debt matters a lot more because not only is the fiscal arithmetic wor- worsening, because spending is going up, but also the traditional buyers of U.S. debt are disappearing. So there's going to be more and more pressure on the domestic uh, investor. And if the domestic investor can't manage, the Federal Reserve's got to come in and help. I want to end on this idea that you've, um, you sort of identified
0: solution here for the, the monetary inflation that we've been talking about for the past um, hour or so, which is gold and, and crypto. Uh, so, so maybe to tease apart, because I think folks are very familiar with the argument about, about gold in this, in this case. It's the, uh, you know, what Paul Tudor Jones calls one of the barbarous relics, right? But it's been around for thousands of years and there's quite good reason to, to think that it's going to be around for, for many thousands of years more. Um, crypto is, is certainly something that's, that's newer. Um, there's a lot of folks out there who are very skeptical about crypto, I would say, especially as a monetary hedge or anything that resembles a flight to quality type asset. What um what made you change your mind about that? And then I've got questions if you think that's just Bitcoin or if that's kind of the broader suite of crypto assets in general.
1: Okay, well, I think what you've got to do is to differentiate, um, you know, different types of crypto according to whether their stores of value whether they have some other use value. Uh, now, what I'm not commenting on is the other use values. All I'm saying is, let's see whether they've got a store of value function. Now, that is... A lot of that is, you know, uh, the proof of the pudding's in the eating. So, you know, if we started off in 2015 looking at Bitcoin, who knows whether that is a decent store of value or not? Does it act as a monetary inflation hedge? I don't know. I couldn't even, you know, attempt to try and prophesize that. But if you look at the experience we've had in the last decade or so, it seems as if it is. So if it's fulfilling that role, people are using it as a monetary inflation hedge. A lot of that is basically confidence. Now, what really matters for a monetary inflation hedge, I would argue, is number one, is there fraud? Is there potential fraud involved? Well, you know, I would argue it's pretty unlikely in the case of Bitcoin. Other crypto, who knows? I don't know. I'm not an expert on that. The second question is, have you got issues such as in the case of Bitcoin, the cost of actually producing Bitcoin, the energy cost is prohibitive? Well, that's a, a cost question people can deal with. So that's economics. The third question is, what about uh supply? Is the supply of Bitcoin truly going to be restrained, or is there some unlimited uh you know exponential growth in supply that will dampen its ability to be an inflation hedge? These are all critical questions. But what I would say is that it seems as if it is acting as a monetary hedge, it's moving with gold, or in fact rather better than gold as it happens. Uh people are using Bitcoin not for transactions but as a store of value. That's another function of money. And it seems that the two are very much independent. And then you've got you know, the other or the, the fourth uncertainty is will governments try and make uh, you know, Bitcoin illegal or try and, you know, or other crypto and try and limit their use? And that's a question, an open ended question. I just don't know. I mean, you, we could have been sitting here in 1933 and saying, well, okay, you know, let's invest in gold. And then you get at the beginning of 1934, I think it was January. Uh, the gold reserve act in the U S, which basically made it illegal for private individuals to hold gold, um, you know, on pain of uh, jail sentence and a big, big fine. And that was, uh, that focused the mind. So, you know, you've got to start thinking that, you know, strange things do happen. Um, governments like control of money and, you know, anything. If you, if you look around the world, you'll see attempts at forgery often have, uh, you know, they, there's, there's often the death sentence involved in a lot of countries. If you try and forge a national currency. I mean, governments take these things really, really seriously. So, what you need is something that is likely to be a store of value that is outside government control. Uh, gold has proven that. I think it will be extremely difficult for any government now to actually uh, limit or, um, uh, or forbid the use of, uh, make it illegal to hold or use gold uh, because it's now a global phenomenon. And maybe exactly the same with Bitcoin. The U.S. could try and make it illegal, but we've got a world out there that is very difficult to control. Michael, do you see the
0: um, Bitcoin cannibalizing uh, gold, so to speak? Or do you think that the, the investor in Bitcoin is maybe a younger, sort of new, new demographic who's interested in a store of value type asset? Um, are they the same investor, different investors, and does one cannibalize the other?
1: You know, this space better than me. I would say my impression is that it's very different audiences. I mean, there is some crossover for sure, but I think you're looking at generational change. I think younger investors tend to understand Bitcoin. They're familiar with it. Um, You've got to remember as well that the tech companies are big, big cash flow generators, and they are likely to be using uh, Bitcoin as vehicles anyway, cryptocurrencies as vehicles for their treasuries. Uh, in a way that maybe an industrial company back, um, you know, a hundred years ago may have actually held gold in its treasury. Now you're getting the tech, the tech companies holding Bitcoin and other crypto. So I think you've got, uh, you know, you, a lot of this is generational or, or sort of learning effects and providing that, um, uh, you know, you, you don't tick any of the boxes I spoke about earlier on the fraud case, you know, the making illegal, uh, you know, uh, unlimited supply. All those factors could be issues, but providing that you're looking at a you know a fairly uh, benign situation in terms of supply, uh, fraud, etc., why not hold Bitcoin? You know it forms a tiny part of people's portfolios anyway, and if people start to move up to decent percentages, you're going to get a big increase in the value of Bitcoin anyway, or crypto generally.
0: Yeah. I would tend to agree with you. Um, well, Michael, uh, thank you so much. You know, you're always very uh, generous with your time. I really appreciate you coming on here. And it'll be fun, uh, again, in, in March of this year to discuss some of, this, some of this live. And frankly, what we've just discussed today is kind of a perfect representation, I think, of what that event is going to be. Um, for folks who want to find out more about, about you um, and follow the work that you do at Cross Border Capital, follow you on Twitter, maybe subscribe to your research, what's the best way to do that?
1: Okay there's there's three routes um one is uh twitter handle is at @crossbordercap there is a substack um report which is called capital wars uh which is named after a book i wrote uh which is about um uh all about these global liquidity trends etc and our website is uh, crossbordercapital.com so pretty straightforward
0: yeah. Well, Michael, I really appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, I've said it a couple of times during this interview, but your research has been very prescient. Um, and just in understanding this whole relationship between monetary inflation and liquidity, I think there's no one better. So guys, um, if you're a fan of the show, I highly recommend that you uh, check out Michael's work. So Michael, uh, thank you so much, uh, again, and, uh, we'll have to do this again soon.
1: Yeah. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. See you. Cheers. All right, everyone.
0: Thank you for tuning into that great interview with Michael. Just as a reminder, I know I've mentioned it a couple times throughout this interview, but Michael is going to be with us in person at our institutional digital assets conference, DAS London. That is March 18th through the 20th in London. Michael is going to be joining us talking about liquidity, inflation, monetary hedges like gold and Bitcoin. They're going to be Many of uh, the on-the-margin interviewees from the past and a lot of the big institutions, the BlackRock's, the Goldman's, uh, et cetera. So if you're into digital assets and if you're into the type of content that we just covered today, I highly recommend that you go. There is a code MARGIN20, which is going to get you a 20% discount on tickets because you're such a loyal listener. And I appreciate you and just genuinely want to see you in person in London. So thanks very much. Hopefully see you in London, March 18th through the 20th. And again, use code MARGIN20.